This is ContactTalkRadio.com. Consciousness in action. And you are taking action into your consciousness by tuning into Contact Talk Radio. And on TuneIn.com, Hing.fm, and Upsnap Mobile. Contact Talk Radio. Welcome to Carpe Diem with your host, Lisa McDonald. My mama told me when I was young, we're all on superstars. She pulled my hair with my lipstick on, in a glass of purple dry. Good morning, everybody. Thank you so very much for joining me, rejoining me here again on this lovely Friday morning. My name is Lisa McDonald. This is my show, Carpe Diem, with the Contact Talk Radio Network. Listenership, 145 countries, 220 TV radio terrestrial satellites, and the potential for millions of iTunes downloads. Once again, I'm super grateful and blessed to be joined by yet another phenomenal guest, My guest today is a gentleman by the name of Peter Edwards, and what I'm going to do before I always turn it over to unscripted dialogue with my guest is I'm just going to plug a little bit about Peter. So who is Peter Edwards? Well, what I can tell you about Peter is that he has worked as a copy editor, sports writer, and briefly as an entertainment editor before drifting into crime reporting. He has written for the Toronto Star for almost 30 years, specializing in organized crime and justice issues. Author of more than a dozen nonfiction books, nine of which are on organized crime. His most recent of which is Business or Blood, Mafia Boss Vito Rizzuto's Last War, which was co-written with Antonia Nicasso. The book has been optioned for a television series by New Metric Media. City has greenlit Business or Blood for a City Part scripted television series debuting on City and FX in 2017. Edwards was a consultant for the movie One Dead Indian, which won three Gemini Awards and was nominated for another four. Edwards has received awards from Amnesty International's Aurelia Chapter, the Saskatchewan Reporters Association, an Eagle Feather from the Union of Ontario Indians, a gold medal from the Center for Human Rights, and many, many more. Peter has been interviewed about organized crime for the BBC, CBC, CTV, CBS.com, and the Mob Stories series for History Television. This man is on fire. So, Peter, I just want to say, wow, that's quite a repertoire, and thank you so much for taking time out of your hectic schedule for joining myself and the listeners here today. How are you? Oh, fine, fine, and I'm sorry I'm not better with Skype. Ah, Don't worry about that. (laughs) We're live now. It's all going well. So I just want to say, like, that's that's quite quite a portfolio that you've built up. And one thing that I'm always interested when I talk to my guests is the inception of my guest journey. So do you want to take the listeners and myself, Peter, back to the very beginning? When did you realize that this was the path for you? Or did you just happen to come upon it? Um, I always wanted interesting stories where people, um, where you got to know the real person, where it wasn't a... Um, a stereotype or some preconception, but you could really know how the person felt. And, um, and I also wanted to do things that might not have been reported if I didn't do them. Like we all want to find fresh ground. And so um, organized crime kind of fit into that. I, I took history in university before journalism, and, and I really like the um, kind of historic flow to organized crime. I also like the uh, level of emotion. Like there's a lot of planning, but there's also a lot of emotion. So I found that interesting. Um, and it's something that touches on uh, all sorts of parts of lives, you know, from um, the crime on the streets to um, what's going on in the boardroom. Fantastic. And so is there a backstory behind the story that you would feel comfortable sharing with listeners? Because it's a very specific genre. It's, uh, you know, obviously this is something uh, for you to have documented, to have talked about, to have so many extensive books related to this subject matter. You know, is there an experience or is there an episode that happened in your life that kind of pieced this together in terms of taking it further into writing and endeavoring to write books? Um, some of it um, uh, sort of built upon other things. There's one where I um, I thought I was being threatened by somebody, and then when I went to see him, we actually got along quite well, and um, I ended up writing a book on him. And so uh, sometimes what starts off as a negative situation can turn positive. One thing with um, a lot of the people I've met, they um, 
they, they they know they haven't led perfect lives and they, they know they've done bad things, but they um, there are reasons. I mean, these aren't people from Mars or Pluto. There are reasons why people turn out the way they do. And with um, it's interesting with the outlaw bikers, I've been doing stuff um, about Hells Angels and people in other big clubs. And for the older ones, the amount of domestic abuse in their family is just off the charts. Mm-hmm. Like, it's like the reason a lot of these people end up doing what they did is because of what they saw in the home when they were quite young. Mm-hmm. And so That's have the... Good. Go ahead, Peter. Oh, sorry. It, it's just, it's interesting because um, all of our lives to to ourselves make sense. You know, to an outsider, it might seem um, odd, but um, for someone to become ultra-violent or ultra-protective of people they love when they're brought up in a really threatening environment, it, it makes sense to them. Mm-hmm. And so have these individuals, um, have they befriended you? I mean, obviously there's a certain level of trust that's established, uh, you know, when you think about all the stereotypes, when you think of, you know, being on the other side of the law perhaps for some of these individuals in certain instances, you know, was there, was it difficult to earn their trust in order to get, uh, full disclosure or, the, you know, their ability to open up to you? Um, so I don't really, if someone ends up being a friend, that's great, but that's not the goal. And I, um, I, I want to write honestly. So even if someone, um, I like them as a person, a lot of the things I'll write, they won't, they won't like. And um, it's my my job, my my duties to the the reader and to the the book itself. Like it's mm-hmm. not to the subject. And so I want to be fair to the person I'm writing about, but that doesn't mean flattering. I mean, if I'm taking someone, some guy's portrait, I don't. To stick in a picture of bread that's just to make them look better. You know, I've got to deal with what I've got to deal with what I've got. Right. And a lot of them, um, a lot of them get this. Some of them don't. But um, the one thing that's really definite is um, for the people I write about, they absolutely, definitely don't want to be ratting on anybody. Like the worst thing in their world is to squeal on somebody, and so they can take responsibility for what they did, but they they won't. Um, if they're old school, they won't mention anybody else around them. And and if I ask them who is with you, they'll turn on me as well. And so um, um, the the be honest about yourself, but don't screw on other people is generally the um, the way they go into it. The code of honor, for sure. And yeah, you know, go ahead, Peter. Oh, sorry. I'm, like the word honor can get stretched a bit. You know, like okay. it's um um. Sometimes there's a lot of honor, and sometimes there's absolutely none. And sometimes the um, oh, I covered a, one um, mass murder where someone who's being set up for the killings, uh, one of the people who could have saved him, um, said "love you, bro." I think 18 times in, in a couple hours before he was murdered. I mean, sometimes um, when people start talking about honor or love, it's when they're going to go in, in exactly the opposite direction. Wow! Wow! And as a result of you having written these books um, and being somewhat embraced into that culture, have you at any point as a result of what's been published, whether it be based on misinterpretation or uh, people, you know, and obviously there's a lot of fact finding and research that goes into anything before official publication, but have you ever come across any situation or circumstance with these individuals where, because of what's been written uh, or how things might, might have been interpreted or misinterpreted that you felt your safety was ever compromised as a result of the books themselves? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's not something you you go into lightly. And, um, I, I mean, I, I love life and I want to live a long time, so I'm not, I don't have some sort of death wish. But sometimes people get, get upset. Sometimes people misinterpret things. Sometimes people... Um, to think they're being protective of someone. So the the biggest thing I can do is that I'll listen honestly. And um, with some of them, it's, you say things like, um, "If you don't talk to me, you'll be someone else will come along." So you know, when you just talk to me, you know that um, the next person you might dislike them even more than you dislike me. Mm-hmm. I, I think um, my job is to be um, um, fair and honest, and that means. Um, the police might not like it too. I, I mean, it's to everybody's benefit to have someone who, who's respected for being fair. And so if they have something to say about the system not doing things right and it can be proven, then I'll write that too. Like I, I'm not 
it's not my job to be on anybody's side. And um, mm-hmm. a long time a long time ago, a really really good reporter told me if you want a friend, get a dog. You know, like, yes. it's not my job to it's, it's not my job to to leave with a whole bunch of new friends. But but what I want is when you pick up the book, you think this is honest, and I want the people who are in the book to think um, even if it wasn't flattering, it was honest. Mm-hmm. And and given that your role as the writer, as the author, is to be impartial and not to take sides, but to be very neutral and uh, and just tell the facts uh, based on the information you've been able to research and anything that's been shared with you, disclosed with you, um, you know, have you ever felt as an author and certainly somebody just based on your repertoire, obviously you pride yourself on integrity. You know, you work for the Toronto star uh, you've received, you've been the recipient of many awards, uh, very, very prestigious type awards. So have you ever felt compromised in the writing of the book about in order to provide the information questioning to what degree you have to go back and forth morality wise on some issues with yourself? You ever um, have that's, a really, that, that's a really good question. And what I um, what I um, try to do is put myself in a position where I can just walk away, like mm-hmm. that. Um, that that if I don't do another book, it's not the end of the world. Or if I quit a certain book, it's not the end of the world. So if um, also I I'm pretty upfront where um, uh, I, I tell people don't tell me unless you want to see it in print. You know, like don't lie to me for God's sakes. But you don't have to. Don't tell me anything that you don't want to read in writing because um, don't tell me your secrets. Like, you tell me, explain your life, but don't um, don't expect me to keep your secrets. It's like giving me a, a check for a million dollars and then telling me I'm not allowed to cash it. You know, I'd rather gotcha. not have the check. Gotcha. And do you find that, uh, because I mean, obviously you have to put that disclaimer out there. You have to make it clear that, uh, whatever's being said to you is intended for print and it is either going to be quoted or it's at least going to be inserted somehow within the book. So, you know, has there any been, has there ever been a situation where somebody has told you something, uh, with the knowledge, um, and with the perception that, you know, you're getting consent? Only for them to, after perhaps it reaches print, they recant and it becomes a question of, okay, who, who's not telling the truth here? Is it the writer of the book or is it the person who was interviewed? Um, what I've had, um, that's like that is I've had someone say something really flattering about someone and then that, then the two people to have a falling out and then the person to want to take back his nice words. <laughs> and so, gotcha. yeah, so I'll, you know, I'll say his, his viewpoint changed or something. I, I've had um, had one guy actually get very upset because he praised someone to the high heavens and then turned on him and really turned on him, and then he wanted it absolutely clear that he couldn't stand the person anymore. And so it was sort of an odd one, but he um, he was praising him as much as he could praise someone, and then he was slamming as much as he could slam him, and you're wondering by the time the book comes out, what's his mood going to be? You know, is he going to be somewhere in the middle, or is he going to swing back and forth? It's more of that sort of thing. Um, one thing too, I, I um, once I was invited to a Hell's Angel party, and um, and the guy who invited me was was quite stable. But I, I I said if I'm there, then I'm still a reporter, and when I get out, I'm still a reporter, and I'm going to write whatever I see. And am I still invited? And he said no. <laughs> but, it, but it was actually really good. But it was really good for us because um, that really drove it home. You know, don't don't give me checks I can't cash. Mm-hmm. And so when you when you go out onto these sites and you're doing field research and you're interfacing with the subject matters in which you're interviewing and uh, all for the intention of your book and the premise of your book, do you go with a security detail? Uh, is it other people who are also journalists or editors or authors? What does the ensemble of, of people look like who is going into the scene? Usually I don't like to be with anyone else because um, – I, I want real control of the image I give off, so I don't want someone smirking or I don't want what if I'm talking to someone and someone starts leering at his his wife or his daughter or something. Like I don't want any side things. Like I want right. everything to be to be what I present. Um I've got something coming up in the new year in, in South America where I actually will have um paid security for that one. Okay. Um where I'll have someone who um speaks Spanish and has a gun. So that um, 
just to keep me out of trouble. Right. And so is the gun visible? Um, yeah, you, if you looked at the person, you'd have a pretty clear idea he's got one. Like it's a former, it's a retired police officer who's going to give me security on something. Okay. So it's, it's not a criminal I'm hiring, but a, a former cop to help me out. Right. And do you ever, you know, when I, when I think of certain movies, like, uh, I'm trying to think if this is the correct title. It's, um, is it Crush? Is it the narcotics officer? He go, he goes in and he gets so immersed in the culture that he, it, the lines get blurred for him and he ends up doing drugs. I mean, obviously he had to do drugs to play the part to get, you know, uh, intel information and to establish trust and rapport. But then he crossed over and just kind of completely lost perspective of, of what it was he was doing and what the, the task was at hand. Do you find sometimes, Peter, to whatever degree you feel comfortable answering this, do you feel sometimes that you can really understand uh, the psyche of the people that you're interviewing and, and sometimes some of what they tell you from their perspective, you can almost rationalize it yourself? It's a great question. I, to be honest, I'm, I'm quite anti-drug. Like I don't know um, if making drugs illegal help, but I, um, I don't want to be around. I don't, I'm not comfortable with, um, with druggy people. And it's, it's more of a, I, I, I just don't, like it like i don't like the way people look when they don't have control right um, and i don't i don't like being around people who've um you know who drink too much either but it's not a um i i, I think the best thing for me is that I'm, I'm always a reporter like if i a lot of them i was talking to someone yesterday and he he freely admits doing things to people who do what he calls playing his game you know, if you play the game, there are consequences to breaking the rules. Absolutely. And so he's totally, he's totally comfortable with enforcing that. But if I don't play the game, if I make it clear I'm not one of them, um, then it actually keeps me a lot safer. I mean, with um, with bikers, I um, sometimes I wouldn't mind having a bike, but then I <laughs> I, I just tell them I'm, I'm not technical. I can't keep my lawnmower working. I'm not going to get a bike. <laughs> and, um, so join, I don't join wanna, the club on that one. Yeah, and it's not even against them, but I just don't want to be. I'm, I'm really happy being a reporter. Like it's um, one thing with these people, they can really sense if you're comfortable in your own skin or not. And the biggest thing a biker can say about you that's positive is that you're solid. And and it basically means that um, from any angle, you're the same person. You're not changing on them. And I'm really, really happy. Um, um, with the line of work I've chosen, I, I don't want to be a biker. I don't want to be a cop. I don't want to be a gangster. I, I'm really happy being a writer. Wonderful. So you really feel that you found your niche, your passion in life? Yeah. If I if I was to if, if I was to make a change, it would be just a different kind of writing. It wouldn't be becoming one of my subjects. Like I um, when I when I was an entertainment reporter, I really liked that. When I was a sports reporter, I really liked that. I um, Part of the reason I got into organized crime was that I worked in, in an extremely big paper and I wanted one area that I was the only one who did it. And mm-hmm. organized crime, a lot of people are afraid to do it and so you can get it um, as your own little area quite, quick, quite quickly. Mm-hmm. So um, that, that was part of the reason I went, went into that stuff. Excellent. So let me ask you this. As, as somebody who's birthed uh, so many books at this point, does it get easier as you go along or do you find that each one presents its own challenges? Um, maybe, you know, because there's a lot of authors and I'm one myself. So maybe you can talk some of us based on your own experience, you know, what that process is like. Do you get into such a groove? It becomes second nature. It's just another book and you're very focused on the subject matter and it's all there. It just, you know, seamlessly, effortlessly pours out of you. Or is it a, is it equally challenging for every book that you endeavor to write? Um, I think there always should be the effort. Like there always should be a certain amount of sweat to it. Like I, um, I love John Steinbeck's writing, and he really, really researched before he wrote fiction. Mm-hmm. Like, it's, like it's all, it's all sort of fiction, but there's something really real under it. Like you, you have the feeling that this man never coasted. And mm-hmm. I, I like writers like that, or Alice Monroe, people who you have the feeling that that every word they put something into it. And so, um, 
I, I don't feel, um, when I started off, I was always wondering, you know, what if I, what if I fail? What if I, what if I don't get another deal? Now I'm, I feel blessed every time I get a deal and I, I think, wow, it's, um, one more trip back to the fair. And I, um, like the, the, the one I'm going to be starting pretty soon, I'm going to be, uh, thinking of a lot of big questions at the start, like plotting it out and thinking of things, um, wondering what's in someone's mind when, when they met someone else a little bit more, um, thinking a little more um, kind of big picture and then, then going for the details after. Um, it's still, I mean, it's still a lot of fun, but I don't think it should ever be that easy. It should be, um, it's almost like if, if you play the sport, you shouldn't start coasting after you make the team. Like you, um, I remember um, for sports fans, there's a receiver named Jerry Rice, and even when he was, way on in his career he's still one of the hardest working people and you could see in the way he played absolutely absolutely well i mean i i have authors on the show quite a bit and i you know i i run in circles outside of radio with authors and you know it's always interesting to get uh people's take on it so some people will say you know depending on the nature of the book like i can say for my children's books which is where i've started now i'm endeavoring to write my first adult nonfiction book but the children's book i mean that just you know pumped out of me like it just poured out of me and it just all aligned however i will say with the adult book it's a totally different process and depending on the content and and what the premise of the book is and perhaps it doesn't even matter maybe just because it's a it's a very um it's a really grueling process, I will say. And again, depending on what you're writing about, it can be quite raw and you really have to go dig deep within. And, uh, it really, it really puts you in a different sphere. Uh, I'll speak for myself on that one. Maybe you can tell us a little bit, Peter, about sometimes what this does to your mind mindset you know do you find yourself shifting in and out of things that sometimes feels like your reality is a bit distorted um, you really ask good questions <laughs> right off the start um, well thank you I, I appreciate that no that that's great like one that's I, my um, job to ask good questions but thank <laughs> you i appreciate that yeah no because it, it reminds me of something else like part of the reason i got into organized crime reporting is i don't want to write about People who do bad things um, to children unless they absolutely get caught. Like I can't stand getting in the mind of um, of a perverted person. Like it right. sounds, it sounds. If someone um, is doing something sort of like a chess game and two sides are trying to outmaneuver each other for some sort of business, or if um, or if it's all adults agreeing to play a game, it it doesn't take the emotional toll, but um, I remember once I covered the murder of a four-year-old girl and oh my God, it was, it was, it was, it was really haunting. Like I, it was, um, I just got uh, chills. Yeah, it's pretty close to being in shock after. Like I, um, um, I, I don't drink much and that night I, I drank a ton and I didn't feel it. Like I was just absolutely horrible. If I'm writing about, um, someone in their forties and they, miscalculate something in a drug deal and they get shot it's very very sad but it's nothing like the level of um someone who didn't choose to be in the game i guess for me it's um when someone can't make the choice and they're still a victim those are the ones that break my heart um if i'm covering a lot of organized crime it's almost like covering a really high level sport with um, different rules right well that's a good analogy good metaphor um so let me ask you, because that's a good segue then. Uh, I can't imagine covering anything to do with a child, a murdered child. Um, you know, but if I parallel that with my experience of having previously once upon a moon uh, working in crisis management within senior management in uh, domestic violence, you know, you get tons of des- uh, testimonials and you see oftentimes women and children coming through the doors. And yes, there's all various sorts of uh, realms of abuse. But I mean, for the people who have, you know, quite fit, you could tell it's physical abuse uh, on top of emotional abuse. But when you hear the battle, uh, the battle wounds, you see the battle scars and you, you hear the horrendous details of what's gone on in these people's lives. Um, one of the things as uh, a director that I had to put into place to keep my staff, um, you know, 
fresh and uh, decompressed and all of that was, you know, we talked a lot about vicarious trauma. You know, so when you when you are subjected to the most heinous of details, uh, particularly as you just cited, you know, a four-year-old child and how that particular story haunted you uh, and you're drinking that evening, um, you know, what what do you do in a situation like that so you get yourself, when you use the analogy of getting back in the game or, you you know, you reference sports with writing and, and covering stories, what do you do to get out of that you know, where you feel like it's just got you at the, the, the core of your foundation and you know it's just, it's, it's touched something in you. How do you, how do you revive yourself and get you focused back on the task at hand, um, without desensitizing, but being able to function and be professional? How do you, how do you work through that? Is there a process? Um, okay, again, another really great question. Um, I am really enjoying this. The, cause you should, you should be out of your comfort zone. You should be, you shouldn't be blase when you're writing something. It should, you should almost feel it and touch it and it should hit all your senses. Um, it should be right in front of you. Um, you should almost not know what you're writing. It should be so, everything should be really visceral. But, um, then when it's over, it's almost like after a, a sport, um, you, you know, shower and move on. And if you don't, if, if another great one comes along, you do it. And if another great one doesn't come along, then just enjoy life. I mean, I've got, I've got a great life outside of, um, outside of the books. And so I, um, I look at a book as almost like a house guest for a year or two. And do I really want to be, you know, under the same roof with this thing for that long? Um, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> also, I, I mean, if I don't I love think that. And if I don't think about it at two in the morning, if I wake up at two and it's not interesting to me, I don't write about it. Okay. But it's got to it's got to actually matter. There's got to be when you go into an interview, there's got to be things that really bother you that you really have to know. Um, that right. that you really wonder. And um, you know, when you, one thing too, when you're talking about the domestic abuse, um, yeah. That, that when I that's come up recently, where some of the most violent people that I've um, encountered and they can be pretty good people a lot of the time and then they snap and they go somewhere you just can't imagine when you really push them there's a huge amount of domestic abuse um there's some people i just get the gut feeling that um their dad did terrible things to the mother and when i get to know them they did um if if people really really want to crack down on on a lot of violent crime i don't think it's all building prisons some of it is just protecting women in their own homes and so that their kids feel secure and their kids grow up to um to trust the system and not to be paranoid and not to feel that they have to uh, pummel every threat, you know, like, like just make people a little more confident in the world. And when a kid sees his mother beaten, that affects the kid for a long, long time in a very, very bad way. Yes, we had, uh, we grappled with that a lot in shelters. And uh, when I lived out West, um, you know, there, we, we, there was many people intergenerational abuse. So we saw, you know, within the same family, and of course this had run the course of different staff and turnover with staff, but if you go back into the stats and the history and the documentation that we needed to keep on file, you would see the same last name come through, but it would be like the granddaughter or the great-granddaughter. And so when you piece together the systemic abuse and the fact that, you know, there there had been no uh, disruption in the cycle, it had been ongoing and it had been learned behavior, unfortunately, we really, as we got progressively uh, more uh, on top of things with staff and staff training, we really uh, paid a lot of attention to honing in on the children, particularly when they were coming in at such young ages and knowing that this was our opportunity to intervene and to apply the skills and the knowledge that we had to hopefully, you know, I mean, you always hope that that what you impart to people has longevity in terms of the lessons learned. But I mean, it was our it was our responsibility to and, and to exercise due diligence to at least do a huge training component with the children. You know, call it art therapy, uh, call it talk therapy, call it a whole host of things that we tried to do because this was our opportunity, if not for the mom herself, uh, but to get to the children and to hope that, you know, we never saw that same last name coming from the same bloodlines in the shelter again. I remember I got to know one guy who was a, um, 
enforcer for really major biker groups, and he he saw a lot of domestic domestic abuse in his family, and then he went on to do violent things um, as a criminal. And he told me that um, uh, he he really loved his wife, but he found himself acting like his father and being violent towards her, and he just didn't want to be that guy. And so to get it under control, he um, he had to really work on his breathing. Like he went to counseling that that allowed him to to put a, a bit of a filter there and to um, get so that he could take a deep breath and just just chill it out a bit. It's um, it's funny because I've heard some people ridicule the idea of yoga in prison, and I think it would be about the smartest use of money you could, you could have. I mean, it Hallelujah. It costs almost nothing. You don't learn anything violent. I mean, if you don't do it well, who cares? And it could... Um, this guy, I mean, it got him to stop beating his wife. I mean, it um, it got him his relationship back with his daughter. It got him a filter, which he didn't have before. And, um, you know, just by controlling his breathing. And so I, 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 I should do yoga. I don't, but, but boy, um, when you hear about the benefits, you know, that some of these, some of these guys have gotten. Absolutely. Well, never too late to start, right, Peter? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right, right after the show. Yeah, yeah, right after the show, you get on that yoga mat. Okay, yeah, and then the next time, the next time I invite you back, we're going to talk about how you're a yoga master and you're teaching classes now. All right. Okay. You, man- you manifest advice. that, Peter. You manifest that. Let me. Uh, let me. Uh, okay. So what I want to do is because you know my brand. Uh, and what I stand for, it's all about living fearlessly. So, you know, and I, I really like to go deep with my guests about this. So, you know, when you think back to a period in your life, uh, because again, no coincidences, it's not uncommon for majority of my guests in terms of them being really at the echelon of what they've endeavored to do, to really be on top of their game and to hone it and be the best version of themselves every single day. You know, usually tapping into their gold has come from really delving into the shit. So it's learning how to turn shit into gold. So, you know, in terms of blending that in with my Living Fearlessly brand and what I like to talk about on radio, you know, how do you relinquish fear? You know, how how do you get yourself whatever it is that might be your perceivable roadblocks or whatever, you know, you sometimes find, because we all get in our own way, right? We all get in our own way, call it ego, call it being in the head more than the heart, uh, call it, especially in your case, you know, the higher up you go uh, and the more your name becomes recognizable. I imagine there's still a little bit of fear factor, like, you know, is this book going to be as good as the last book? You know, have I kind of lost my edge, you know? Are, you know, have I kind of plateaued in my career? So, you know, in terms of the whole subject of, of living fearlessly, what does that mean to you and how have you demonstrated that or how have you implemented that in your life? Um, a long, long time ago, I was um, really into judo. And so I, I took a year off and I went to England to practice with the British judo team. And I wanted to basically shadow these a couple of guys who had won medals in the Olympics and and that, that was my big thing. Like they, to me, I would have, I don't know what I would have sold to become, um, you know, top level at judo. Yeah, I really loved it. And, um, when I went there, I got, I got injured quite a bit and I really wasn't as good as I thought I was. But, but on the other hand, I, I loved it. Like I, um, I ended up having uh, just a whole series of operations from injuries and, and I got just, just throttled by some really, really good fighters, like world-class guys. And, and I loved it. Like, so it wasn't, I think we, I think we're too afraid of failure. I think a lot of times the most fun comes when you push yourself right to the edge where you do fail. Um, yes. And like when you go to exhaustion, when you go so that you fail, when you, when you find out what your limits are, that I think when it's painful, it's when you don't have the nerve to, um, uh, to quite do it. Once in high school, I got up and nerve cast this one girl out, and then I phoned her father. Said she's coming to the phone. I just hung up and <laughs> walked away. <laughs> and so, like years and years later, I don't know what she would have said. And uh-huh. I'm not going to ask now. But I mean, like those are the things that bug you. You know, when you chicken out. It, right. There was something neat, neat about in um, judo when you step up and you're going to fight someone who 
you know can throw you around like a kite and yet you're still going to do it and three or four minutes later you walk back to where you were and you you think wow you know I'm still in one piece it wasn't really that bad right excellent failure isn't that bad I mean I've I've been turned down you know by all sorts of um, places professionally and um, it's it's not that bad I mean it's not it's not the end of the world I, Mm -hmm. I think um if you haven't failed, you haven't tried. You know, if, you, if you've never, I mean, Michael Jordan was cut from high school basketball team. If you haven't, if things haven't gone wrong, you haven't really pushed yourself that far. You know, like you should, um, you should be proud of um, when you've, you know, had the nerve to go so far that you failed. Absolutely. Well, you know, for anybody who follows other people's careers and for anybody who would look upon these intangible people as their mentors, as I do. So when we talk about, you know, the Tony Robbins or we talk about the Oprah Winfrey's or the Maya Angelou's or, you know, all of them, you know, the Walt Disney, they've all had major, major rejections. People who have said to these athletes, you know, for whatever the reason, you know, you're too short or you're not really a good illustrator. You're not really a good graphic arts designer. You're, you know, you really don't have what it takes uh, to come to life on the bigger stage. And, you know, these people, you know, must be eating crow right now because, I mean, these people have just plowed through. And what I love, and I think why these people resonate with so many people like myself, is it's the inherent belief that they have in themselves. So no matter how many rejections they have received, uh, no matter how many times they were glossed over, didn't make the team, got benched, uh, were told they were not made for television, really didn't have a knack for it, didn't have the, the X factor, as was the case with Oprah. Well, look at these people now. I mean, and... You know, so would you agree with me, Peter, or maybe you can extrapolate or elaborate on it? Do you believe that in order to be successful, however you choose to find to to define it in life, it really comes from the core belief of believing in yourself, even if nobody else does? Yeah, and you can't let other people define you. Like you're not Absolutely. a better person if you're walking around with a little medal or a little trophy. Like you, all you can do is be as good as. Um, if you can manage, I, I remember in high school we had one wrestler on the team who just had a god awful record, but he but he kept on trying. And mm-hmm. looking back on it years later, I don't know anyone I respect more off the team than him. And he had just a horrendous record, but but he kept getting up, he kept trying, and I'm sure whatever he chose to do, he did well in. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's, sometimes we make it too much about who's standing at the top of the podium. It should just be, you know, where, where did you, where did you start and where did you finish and how clean were you along the way. You know, if you have to cheat to get on the podium, what are you? You're just a cheater with a better view. Absolutely. Well, I mean, that rings true with many athletes who end up getting tested, right? And uh, they test positive for all kinds of uh, illegal substances for public or performance enhancers. And, you know, then it turns out that they get stripped of the medal and they end up, you know, being a huge embarrassment to the country. And then it puts the whole... Uh, you know, question of athleticism and, and certain Olympic sporting events under the radar. Like it's just, you know, it's really unfortunate that people go to that degree just to be able to say, you know, I qualified or I won or I positioned or, you know, when deep down, whether you get caught or not, you know, within yourself, you didn't do it the right way. Um, you know, it was unethical and, um, and truly if it were, and, and I mean, I don't even know why people would want to shortchange themselves that opportunity of doing it legitimately, taking the chance, especially for the love of sport, which for all the training that goes into whatever it is they endeavor to do, I mean, you've got to be 100% all in. You know, it doesn't matter what you do uh, for, you know, an individual sport, team sport, you know, who wants to invest all of that and, you know, climb the ranks and not ever be able to know if you would have legitimately won by just being clean, you know, I, I just, it's, it's unfortunate, but I think that says a little something and you can talk about this, Peter, but I think that says something about the culture of, of competitiveness or the, the, the need to succeed or, you know, to be recognizable. I mean, there's no doubt psychologically, there's got to be a lot of um, pressure that would make somebody convert over to doing something unethically just to say that they won or they broke a record or they, you know. Yeah, it, there's so many different ways of being successful too. Like um, I, I can think of one coach who I won't say the name because I don't want to embarrass someone, but he um, 
uh, coaches a football team and the quarterback is really bad. Like he's a really nice kid, but just not good at it at all. Mm-hmm. And um, so he had a horrendous game on the weekend and lost by quite a bit. And um, oh, the, the coach um, went down on one knee, looked the kid in the eye and said, um, you're the, you're the best friend of so many kids on this team. It's time you started being your own best friend and you're doing your best and that's all you can do. And we're proud of you. And I want you to start being better to yourself. Well, to me, from my point of view, that's the winning coach. That's yes. the coach I want my kid with. Like, I don't care that the other guy won by a whole bunch of points and, um, you know, hit a bunch of touchdowns. Like that's, that's the experience, you know, 10 years later, that's, that's the meaningful thing that happened that afternoon. And this kid should, I mean, he's a really nice kid, but he should never throw a football again. Like he's just, he's not made for that. <laughs> but on the other hand, it's a sweet kid and there's a really sweet encounter. And 10 years from now, if those two bump into each other, it's going to mean something. And it, it, like, it was a, it was a decent thing that happened. And that should be what sports is about. Like his parents were right to put him in it because he, really thought he could do it. He's really giving it a good try. He got a good life experience. He's got all sorts of friends. He just can't throw a football better than my dead grandmother. <laughs> but all the rest of it he's gaining from. Well, I, I know we're kind of deviating into the world of sports here, but I think they make for really great metaphors, which you've been using throughout the show. So I certainly appreciate that because that illustrates the example of what you're trying to get across to listeners just beautifully. Um but, you know, I, I've had professional athletes and coaches on my show, and the one thing I'm always interested to know, and this, this you know, applies to anything. So whether we're talking about – it's more synonymous with sports, but if you think about other avenues and vocations that people go down, you know, what's your whole philosophy, Peter, on, you know, does everybody get a partic- participation ribbon for just showing up, or do you believe that people need to uh, understand what it is to earn – uh, through blood, sweat, and tears, and to feel the recognition of what it is to get an actual ribbon that symbolizes, yes, you broke a record, or yes, you got first place, or second place, third place. Do you think people are 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 making kids soft by giving everyone a participation ribbon? Like, what's your philosophy think, on that? I think you should get a ribbon for a personal best. Like, I think um, yeah. if I'm only capable of running you know, the hundred meters in in one time, and or like if I improve it and I've got really limited ability, that's still an achievement. And so I, I'm more about personal best, you know, that you should um, – it should have been your best performance that you could could manage on that date. I don't think um, – I think little kids can see through um, see through it when you patronize them. So I don't, I don't think – I think maybe that makes the parents feel good. I don't think the kids really um, go for it that much one way or the other. Um, but, but I think if um, – if you say to someone that was really, really good, you know, you didn't used to be able to swim a full length of the pool. Now you can, you know, this kid may never, you know, get, get anywhere near um, a high level swim meet, but that still means something, you know, like right. everybody who completes a marathon is a great athlete mm-hmm. and some of them have pretty slow times. And, and, and oddly too, if you, I remember once when I was a sports writer, a really, really good runner told me that he has a huge amount of respect for the people who do the marathon in twice the time that he does it in because he only suffers for a little over two hours. They suffer way longer. And so frankly, they're tougher than him. Wow. That's, I love that perspective. Yeah. He's always getting off easy. He's a fast runner. So he, he got into the showers quicker than anybody else. Right. Well, that's, yeah, I appreciate that. Um, so I'm just, you know, as I always am when we're getting to the bottom of the hour, cognizant of time and, and what last things I would wish to ask of you. So uh, the one last thing I'm going to ask, we'll wait till we get to the end, but, you know, for people who want to connect with you, find out more about you, follow you, support you, we'll get to that before we completely wrap up here. Um, but, you know, for somebody who's as accomplished as yourself, Peter, you know, for somebody who... Uh, you know, has a lot of passions and has honed those passions. Is there anything on the horizon that might be out of the norm uh, or out of character for what people would think you would want to necessarily accomplish that you would like to endeavor to do that might be a little bit different? Um, I'm doing um, some young adult fiction. So I've got a, um, I'm like my first novels coming out next year and uh, and then I'll probably take another run at it. And it's sort of the flip side of what you were saying, where you found writing for younger people easier and for adults harder. It's, it's kind of the opposite for me. And um, Really? Interesting. But it, yeah, but it, it really was fun, and it really was a chance to learn something. And it, 
a lot of the people I interview, they'll tell me a lot about their childhoods, and so I can, you know, hear a lot of things and get into a lot of the experiences that are outside of my life, and it's it's a chance to to do something with them. Um, so I think, and I think that helps the nonfiction stuff um, quite a bit. Um, so I'm trying to. Um, I think you know, in nonfiction, you're always trying to use the techniques of fiction, but just but keep it all honest. And so this is a way to practice um, how to plot something and how to. Um, you don't have any excuses in fiction. Like you can't say, "Oh, the person turned out to be boring." You know, <laughs> they're right. they're as exciting as you make them. I mean, Charles Dickens. Um, it's sort of neat when you think of all the great writers of all time. They all had way worse equipment than any of us do. Mm-hmm. I mean, none of them had a computer, you know, like Shakespeare didn't have a great computer. Um, Charles mm-hmm. Dickens didn't, Ernest Hemingway didn't. They had pieces of paper, and if they're lucky, a ballpoint pen or a quill, you know, they, they could have to come out of their head. Mm-hmm. So I, um, there, there's something about um, facing a blank page that um, uh, is kind of, it's, it's kind of thrilling. To, to be honest, though, if I, if I tomorrow everything dried up, I'd still be happy with life. I'd just play with my dog more. And, you know, like, I don't think, I don't think it makes you a good or bad person by, um, by achieving things. I just think it makes life more interesting. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so what I'd like to ask you too, Peter, not uncommon for what I ask us. I don't, you know, it's not always a set question. And again, this is all unscripted, but in terms of your legacy, you know, what is the legacy that you wish to leave behind and how do you think people will remember you? Um, to be honest, I don't know that I will be remembered and that's not the end of the world. Like that's not a sad thing. I mean, um, there's all sorts of people on earth. I, um, I like to think that, that I, um, didn't betray people, that I was honest with people, that, um, Lovely. um, that you, that you let people start, you know, at their own sort of finish line. I remember when I was a, a little kid, um, Oh, it sounds odd, but this one um, nice but, you know, alcoholic old man telling me um, about all the legends of the area where I grew up, you know, he's sort of in the mountains of B.C., and he's a really, really nice, decent guy, and he'd had a hard life, and um, I don't know, I always thought, thought it was neat just to listen to him, even though other people didn't listen to him. I always thought, um, you know, there's something in him that, um, you know, did rate, um, rate a bit of an audience, so... To be honest, I, I think I think I'm extremely privileged, extremely lucky. Um, it sounds corny, but if I drop dead in five minutes, um, five minutes from now, I really I've had a great life. Like every, I, I feel like it's a soccer game, and I'm on bonus time. You know, wow! Like already, the game's already gone really, really well, and anything extra is is just a bonus. So I. Um, I I feel really, really lucky and really happy. I don't I don't have any. Um, I, I hope I haven't hurt the feelings of nice people. Either sometimes you don't know how you're perceived or you don't know how you come across, but I, um, I feel like I've had just a great ride. Well, not that I wish this upon you, but you brought it up. If you were to die in five minutes, you'd make me a pretty famous person getting the last interview in. Have <laughs> <laughs> hey, we got five minutes left? Maybe I should hang on a little longer. Yeah, don't die yet, Peter. Um, <laughs> Yeah, please. Let's see this through to the end. But um, so, you know, for anybody who is listening, because this is all about mind, body, spirit. It's about consciousness. It's about embracing passions, relinquishing fear, uh, really stepping into your preferred state of reality and being and, and truly just being in competition with yourself, being the best version of yourself every day. So, you know, the type of people who would gravitate towards listening to my show or the network, uh, again, all equally premised on those subject matters, you know, for anybody who's like sitting on the fence in life for whatever they've gone through, uh, you know, maybe they're scared either because of age, either because of upbringing and it's, it's, you know, it's been embedded in them that they're, you know, not meant to amount to anything or, you know, there's so many things at play that keep people stuck as opposed to really loving life and embracing life. So for anybody who's listening right now, uh, who would be quite enamored by your accomplishments and how you choose to look upon life and live your life and honor yourself in the way you live your life. What would you say to these people who, you know, are scared to take a risk? Um, failure isn't that bad. I mean, most people who've accomplished the most have failed the most. I, um, it's weird too, because looking back on things, I'm, I'm more proud of some of my failures than I, are, than I am of some of my achievements. Like, um, 
once by mistake I tried out for the Detroit Tigers, which sounds bizarre, wow. but I um, Detroit Tigers. They had a walk on. Well, they, but I was a really bad baseball player. I got cut from a team of fourteen-year-olds, and then I heard that there was a camp um, um, in London, Ontario, at this um, park, and so I went off to the park. And I thought camp meant that they're going to help us with our skills. And then when I got there, it was a walk-on camp for the Detroit Tigers, and <laughs> I thought I thought I might as well go for it because I'd already gotten there. And that's um, awesome. Yeah, and so I, um, I, I mean, it really was. It was bizarre because I. I went away thinking, boy, that equipment is built well because I kept catching balls off the face and, and it didn't hurt. <laughs> so right. I was a catcher. And so I, um, I mean, it was a really, really neat experience. It was, um, you know, and I, I was horrendous. Like I, I, you don't get much worse than how I was. I was, um, an object that the ball bounced off, but, but it really was fun. Um, failure isn't that bad. And, and frankly, I'm kind of proud of that, that I, that I went out there. I mean, anybody, it's easy to play baseball when you know what you're doing. <laughs> it's, right. it's a whole different thing when you when you don't really have a clue. And so I well, am actually proud that I did that. Well, fantastic. And obviously the experience made an impression on you because here you are X amount of years later sharing it as the example of, of how you would wish to impart uh, advice to people sitting on the fence. So I think that's phenomenal. And unfortunately, Peter, the hour goes, always goes way too quickly for my liking. And so given the fact that we're wrapping up here, I'd like to give you an opportunity to whatever degree you feel comfortable sharing your contact information. How can people connect with you? Oh, sure. Um, I'm on Facebook. Um, also, I've got a website, peteredwardsauthor.com. And my mm-hmm. email is pedwards, so P-E-D-W-A-R-D-S at T-H-E-S-T-A-R, like the star, dot C-A. And um, I'm happy to hear from people. Fantastic. Well, Peter, I want to thank you so much for the gift of your time. I want to thank you for all your insights and uh, and just your candidness. I really appreciate transparency and I really appreciate people, you know, getting to the nuts and bolts of their journey and uh, some of the things that make their lives quite uniquely fascinating to the rest of us. So I want to thank you for that. And I uh, would love to at some point down the road, whether it's after your next book's done, TV series, whatever it is you want to do, I'd love to have you back and talk more. Um, but in the meantime, yeah, fantastic. And I know we'll be talking behind the scenes. So to my listening audience, I want to thank you very much for once again taking time out of your Friday and tuning into my show. This is Lisa McDonald with the Contact Talk Radio Network. Again, I go live every Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific. If you have any show topic ideas or you would wish to appear as a prospective guest on my show, kindly reach out to me at lisamcdonald13 at gmail.com. McDonald is spelled M-C-D-O-N-A-L-D. And alternatively, you can reach me at lisamcdonaldauthor.com. I want to wish everybody a phenomenal safe weekend. Thank you once again. Look back, look forward to checking back in with you next Friday. Love and gratitude, everyone. Take care. Bye-bye. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>